Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here in Istanbul with Cengiz Shishman, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Houston, Clear Lake. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me today. Our discussion will focus on Sabatai Sevi, a Jewish rabbi who, in 1665, was proclaimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Unlike a number of other messianic religious movements, Sabatai Sevi's gathered tens of thousands of followers. We'll also be discussing the Donme, the communities of Sevi's followers who, after his death, inwardly retained practices of Judaism, but presented themselves to the outside world as pious Muslims. To guide the conversation, we'll use Cengiz's recent book, The Burden of Silence, Sabatai Sevi and the Ottoman Turkish Dönmez, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. First, let's cover some basics for our listeners. Tell us briefly, who's Sabatai Sevi? And can you give us a brief timeline of his movement? Sabatai Sevi, or Shabtai uh, Sevi in Hebrew spelling, is one of the most remarkable historical characters. Uh, it is not that I've been working on him for so many years, close to two decades now, but that is really a historical fact because he created one of the most impressive, widespread uh, historical, religious, and social movements in the early modern setting. The movement uh, and then the, the magnitude of movement was like stretching from Isfahan to London to Moscow to uh, Yemen, even to Morocco. And the movement combined Jewish, Christian, and Islamic elements, and it created one of the most, you know, one of the earliest uh, transnational and transreligious uh, movements. And it is also one of the rare events that connected Ottoman and Jewish history to the uh, global, uh, global history. To the extent that, for example, we uh, have some uh, news uh, indications showing that uh, the uh, news about the movement uh, reached as far as to the New World. Uh, the contemporary uh, president of uh, Harvard University, Increase Mather, uh, for example, was talking about uh, the stirs, the recent stirs among the Jews as early as 1666 and 67. Which means that, again, we are facing one of the most uh, you know, interesting uh, historical uh, phenomenon. So who is Shabtai Tzvi? I mean, Shabtai Tzvi was a Jewish rabbi who was born into a relatively uh, wealthy Jewish family in the Ottoman uh, Simirna or Izmir uh, in 1626. Since he was born in Shabbat, he was named as Shabtai. And he was the youngest son of the family, and then he was pushed or recommended to go into uh, learning and studying. And he did. He was such a talented man that, you know, he finished his education in uh, traditional Jewish learning. And as uh, young as at the age of 18, he was ordained as a, a rabbi. Um, but his quest for knowledge did not stop there. I mean, he found himself, uh, you know, studying uh, Jewish mysticism, or technically called as uh, Jewish Kabbalah. Jewish Kabbalah, um, simply put, uh, Jewish mysticism, whose roots go all the way to the times of Moses, according to you know Jewish uh, lore. Uh, and the legend has that you know Moses received indeed two Torah at the uh, Mount Sinai, the one that we know, the written Torah, and he also received an oral Torah. And that became the very essence, very foundation of Jewish mysticism in the, in the long run. 
So Shabtai Svi, you know, developed an interest into this rich Jewish lore at the age of 20s. So just to take stock, we have this young Jewish man born in Izmir, 1626. He will go on to, to form a successful messianic movement mm-hmm. and have tens of thousands of followers believing he is the Messiah. Could you talk a little about his later life that you talk about in the book and his travels, particularly maybe focusing on two characters that stuck with me, his wife, Sarah, and Nathan of Gaza. Great. I mean, uh, again, after his interest into Kabbalah, shortly afterwards, rather, I mean, he thought that he was the Messiah. He was a long-awaited Messiah because Judaism uh, was, uh, or is, such a, like, you no know, Messiah and Messianic-centered religion that, you know, the, the time and space in Judaism is constructed around uh, this idea of Messianism. And in history, we have seen Tons of messiah or pretended messiahs in Jewish history, but none of them became uh, successful or impactful, and then their followers just you know reach up to like few hundreds. But in the case of Shabtai Svi, it I mean he, again he created such a like you no know, famous like influential movement. Of course, that did not happen overnight. You know he first expelled from uh, his hometown Izmir because of his antinomian and, and strange acts. And then he began to wander. Uh, that is something like fitting to this idea, Jewish idea of like you no know, wandering Jew. And then he traveled wide and away, or everywhere in the Ottoman Empire. He visited all the uh, all the uh, Jewish communities, uh, and still, I mean, he was being expelled from everywhere he went to, until the point when he met one of the most uh, influential and also very, very, very charismatic uh, young man, Nathan of Gaza, in 1665. That was a momentous event in the history of Shabtai Sevi himself and in, his, in the history of his, his, his movement. But even before that, there was another character that you already mentioned, his wife, Sarah. She had a very interesting story. She is indeed an interesting person, quite an idiosyncratic person. We don't know very much about her, her earlier life, but she was uh, orphaned in uh, Poland uh, back in the Jewish pogrom called Kumenisky pogrom in uh, like 1648. And then he came to Holland and then he was, she was born in, she was like raised in one of the orphanages and then came to Italy, and then once she saw it, she dreamt that she was destined to marry a messiah. And then she, you know, began her quest, and then she found herself, like, you know, in Cairo, during which time uh, Shabtai was in Cairo. I mean, the story is long, but they uh, got married. But the thing is, you know, Sarah was somewhat a, has a, like, somewhat a loose virtue to the extent that she was called even as a harlot. Shabtai, nevertheless, you know, married to her, and until that point, he had like two unconsummated marriages, because of that there were so many rumors about his sexual potency. But his marriage to Sarah erased all of those rumors. But the thing is, with Sarah, certain licentious, certain wantonness, sexual perversion, became part of the Sabbatian uh, Shabtai's thought, so to speak. And in the long run, actually, we see the impact of that sexual antinomianism and that based itself on the Talmudic idea of the messianic age is going to come when old men are sinners or when old men are righteous. So in a way, uh, Sabbatian antinomianism uh, preferred the first equation, first part of the equation that you know, ma- old men are going to be somewhat sinners 
through those antinomian and strange acts. So just to make sure I got it straight, the sort of encouraging or yeah, encouraging of these antinomian acts was a sort of way to mm-hmm. to show that this is the time of the Messiah, mm-hmm. who happens to be mm-hmm. Shabbatai Sevi. Yes. Got it. Because, you know, the Messiah is here, therefore Messianic age is here, therefore we subject to a different rule and ruling. We subject to a new Torah, which is the antinomian, which is the asymmetrical of the Torah that we have today. That's the idea in Messianic age. So Nathan of Gaza, in that regard, becomes a crucial person, and with his inclusion to the movement and with his advocacy of his messiahship, the Messianic movement began in, uh, in reality in 1665, and less than a year, the movement created again one of the largest religious movements in history. So we have these two important figures, Sarah, his wife, and Nathan of Gaza, who helped catapult Shabbatai Sevi to fame or infamy, depending on whose viewpoint you're taking. I was curious about the Ottoman response to Shabbatai Sevi's movement. They eventually do arrest him and present him with basically two options, death or conversion to Islam. He opts for conversion and then dies 10 years later. We'll get to that story in a second, but I'm curious about this arrest. My understanding was that the Ottomans tended to avoid intervening in the religious affairs of its Christian and Jewish communities. But why in the 17th century then do they decide that they need to intervene in Shabbatai Sevi's movement? The reason being, I guess, the movement became uncontrollable at some point and it uh, began to harm the social order that Ottomans envisioned to have. As you said, I mean, according to the principles of loosely defined millet system, because there's lots of discussion on the millet system, whether it was there or not, but I believe that in the 17th century there was something there which uh, somewhat, you know, gave an organization, an order to the management of the diversity, management of minorities. So according, according to that principle, I mean, Ottomans did not intervene into their internal affairs until that internal affair transcends itself uh, from the communal borders. So in the case of Sabbatians, uh, Sabbatian movement, we realized that the movement, again, uh, had, a, had a potential to uh, harm the social order and uh, we also know that you know uh, there were lots of like, complaints uh, coming from either Jewish authorities or at some point even coming from uh, merchants in Izmir uh, because people uh, stop paying their debts and then creating some uh, problems in uh, on the streets and etc. So at that point, uh, Ottomans you know felt themselves uh, to intrigue into the affairs, and that's how things got started from the Ottoman uh, point of view because the Ottomans. Based on the Ottoman records, we uh, realized that you know Ottomans uh, called it fitna, like a sedition. So the, when any movement or any idea was uh, perceived as fitna, it is a time for the Ottomans to intervene in a way. Got it. So this is not an exception to that basic rule we see in history of, in general, they leave Jewish and Christian communities to themselves. It follows the same rule. It just, in this case, the Ottomans saw that this was going beyond simply an intra-Jewish religious affair. This was becoming political. It was becoming difficult to contain. Certainly. Rather than explaining the cause of the moment only with Jewish causes, which was somewhat uh, almost a norm in Jewish studies for so many years, we have to also look at the larger Ottoman and even larger Eurasian context. Therefore, in my study, 
I contextualize the moment A in the Jewish context and B in the Ottoman context and C in the larger Eurasian context. So Ottoman context, as you said, is quite important in terms of like you know, following the trajectory of the movement even after its demise. Uh, 17th century Ottoman Empire was, of course, a time of crisis and changes. I mean, Ottoman Empire were at war with almost all of their, their neighbors. That created a certain amount of, of course, instability. And then the Jews, or Ottoman Jews, were not an exception uh, to that instability. And therefore, they were somewhat ready to hear some messianic calls. And there is also, of course, the Eurasian context that uh, we had to mention here. Um, that is the uh, Christian context, that you know, the year 1666 is such a crucial year for especially millennialists, the people who uh, were expecting the second coming of Jesus. But according to some certain understanding of Christianity, Jesus was going to come, for sure, but before his coming, certain prophecies needed to be realized, one of which was the coming of Antichrist. And Christians in Europe, especially evangelical and you know, millenarian Christians, were thinking that in the year 1666, Dajjal or Antichrist is going to appear. And to those Christians, Jewish Messiah was no other than Antichrist. So when someone from the East, a Jewish guy from the East, proclaimed that he was the Messiah for the millennial Christians, it was an aha moment. I mean, they were saying that, aha, I mean, now the sign for the, the biggest sign for the second coming of Jesus is here. It was a bit of a perfect storm that seeds of messianism already had been sowed in Europe and in such a troubling and unstable Ottoman context that up comes this successful messianic movement. Yeah, to me, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching like, you know, global history in my uh, school and to me, Sabatia movement, again, is one of the uh, earliest examples of this religious global movement in the early modern setting. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here today with Cengiz Shishman talking about Shabbatai Sevi and the Donme communities of the Ottoman Empire. We followed the story of Shabbatai Sevi himself, how he claimed to be a Jewish messiah and led a growing movement until he was arrested by Ottoman authorities and, under duress, converted to Islam. You know, one question I had in particular was this issue of sincerity. I know from works, uh, I'm thinking specifically of Daringill on conversion and apostasy in the Ottoman Empire, that in the 19th century, Ottoman authorities became increasingly concerned with the sincerity of converts to Islam, fearing that people might convert for political reasons and then reconvert back to their previous faith at a more opportune moment. So I was wondering, were Ottoman authorities in 1666 also raising similar sincerity concerns, or was it a different time, different conceptions of religion? So from the Ottoman perspective, of course, it was just one of those many other uh, conversion cases. And the expected thing is that you know, usually uh, the converts were supposed to follow suit with other, other converts. In the case of Sabbatians, 
we understand that you know even ottomans realized that you know there is something unusual about them because they did not you know follow suit with the other converts rather they kept some of their beliefs inside but at the outside they were basically following the uh, ottoman public religion they were muslim and turk in public but messianic jews not jews but it's very important they were messianic jews in their private lives and that created a double life which continued basically until today and so in this aftermath you point out that sabbatized believers who then come to be called the donme or converts they faced three major issues you write a crisis of leadership persecution from rabbinical authorities and reintegration into Ottoman society. And in trying to address all three of these issues, they split into three major subsects, the Yakubi, the Karakash, and the Kapanja. Can you talk a little bit about the debates and events that created these subsects and how their beliefs differ from each other? So now Shabtai died. And since he died now, or disappeared from our mortal eyes, uh, the first question was that, you know, what are we going to do? And who is going to lead us? And at that point, they were mainly concentrated in Salonika. Salonika became the headquarters of Donme existence, in a way, until the modern times. They said first that, you know, okay, Yakub Celebi is going to be our first leader. Why? Because Yakub Celebi's sister, Aisha, was uh, Shabtai's last wife. By the way, Sarah died with two kids, and now Shabtai married second time. And then he was, by the way, in the exile in the last uh, three years of his life in Albania, Ulgun in Albania. And, and then uh, that's why Jakub Celebi was the one who had to get the leadership. But there was a resistance to this idea. Uh, they said that you know there was another guy whose name was Baruch Yoruso. He was born nine months after Shabtai's death. Therefore, the reasoning was that you know since there is this transmigration of soul idea in Jewish Kabbalah and mysticism, they said that you know Shabtai's soul, messianic soul, was transmigrated to this new baby, Baruch Yoruso who was known as Osman Baba in later traditions. And they said that you know, Osman Baba is going to lead us. And since Osman Baba, in, even in his youth, was such an idiosyncratic character, there was another resistance to him, and then community was also split one more time. And by the turn of the 18th century, now we had three subsects. So basically, there's this really charismatic messianic leader. Once he passes... The question is, who takes the baton? And they split on on different issues, whether it's this Osman Baba, whether it's Yakubi Chalebi, whether it's whomever. Yes. In a way, I mean, they followed three different paths until the modern times, and then they created three subsects. And that's one of the, by the way, like the mistakes in the scholarship that people usually refer uh, Donmez uh, as if they are being one big homogeneous group. Rather, to me, again, we are facing or talking three different uh, religious sects. So in your sixth chapter, you describe the parallel lives of Donmes. You talk about how the 18 commandments that come to be accepted by these three subsects dictated that they, quote, 
simulate the quality of being Muslim, but stay entirely Jewish in their innermost worlds. Now, living like that could be seen by some as being a burden. Is that what you mean by your title and burden of silence, that they sort of had to live with this difficulty? You described, for example, burial rites and how they had to sort of present as pious Muslims on the outside, but then would have a separate ceremony for their dead privately without the corpse, since the corpse would need to be resting in an Islamic cemetery. Just one example, but I'm just curious about this, the burden or the, the difficulties of these two worlds and how that relates to your title. Right. Again, the title was a Kabbalistic term indeed. It's called the Ma'ase Duma, uh, burden of silence, but it could be translated in so many different ways. At a face value may sound that it is a burden and it has some negative connotations, but it's not necessarily so. Because in mystical traditions or secret traditions, uh, believers uh, are given some secrets, some, some treasures, so to speak. And then if you are willingly be part of that tradition and lore, that secret actually would give you a power. It's a privilege. Because you are being chosen and privileged to have that uh, secret. It's a good thing, really. But the moment that you want to break that silence, that burden became a heavy burden for you. So in a way, that burden of silence you know, brings a double legacy to the believers in the coming centuries. I mean, at first, it may empower you, but in the long run, it may even it may like harm you and then even kill you. So with that idea in mind, I mean, three subsects can develop a parallel life in public, as you said, they were like not Turks and then Muslims, but in private they were uh, they were like Messianic Jews, and uh, that parallel life uh, and space, in a way, uh, is the reason to explain how they carried their enigmatic identity throughout the centuries. Right, and this is actually where I wanted to shift gears a bit to talk about the 19th century in the Ottoman Empire, the modern, the secular. In your seventh chapter. You claim that although Donme practices and institutions had helped guiding them in maintaining the secret community in an Islamic society, it offered no solution for contending with the secularism and rationalism of modern life. As a result, these three subsects all had within them three sort of factions emerge those who were more orthodox, who wanted to keep tradition, reformist, who wanted to make incremental change, and liberal factions who wanted to dispense with a lot of tradition altogether. So could you talk a little bit about the, this sort of emergence, the ways that you saw it, and how it guided your approach to this history in the 19th century? Donmez, uh, by that time, actually, I mean, in Salonika especially, were the ones who were working with, you know, say, the consuls. Like, you know, they were working at the uh, British or French consuls, and they were always... Uh, more connected uh, to the uh, outside world uh, and then into business life. They were almost like, you know, not monopolizing necessarily, but dominating the business of like you know, textile and then tobaccos. So when we come to the 19th century, that was added also uh, education that, you know, some of them you know, went to Europe and then got their edu edu education there. And by the second half of the 19th century, they were the ones who established uh, the first modern educational institutions and schools and whatnot. 
And the graduates of those schools became the, like, fed into the Ottoman bureaucracy and business and military and you name it. And um, the traditional Donme social norms and regulations actually was not enough to meet the challenges of those modern ideas and practices. Donme youth, uh, early, uh, as early as uh, the 19, early 19th century, began to challenge their traditional settings. And it would come no surprise uh, to see that Donme theology is inherently antinomian. So the Donme youth, in a way, did not have difficult time, say, to adopt those radical, challenging modern ideas. And therefore, they became the early uh, liberals uh, in Salonika, along with, of course, other liberated, say, Turks and Ottomans and Armenians and Jews, because now we are in the larger Tanzimat setting, without which, of course, we cannot understand what's happening to this particular community in the 19th century. Absolutely. And in fact, I wanted to talk a bit about the Donmes in Salonika in particular. You call it the engine of Ottoman and Turkish modernization, and you point out that the Donmes were one of the most influential, if not the most influential, group of people in that city. So if Salonika is the engine, they're driving the bus. As a result, you suggest that they were an important factor behind Ottoman and Turkish modernization projects in the 19th century, and you connect their political and economic power to these other movements that we may not always associate with Donmes, like the Young Turks or Freemason Lodges. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those connections and how you see Donmes playing a larger role in the Tanzimat and the constitutional period and Ottoman modernization? You should not get me wrong. I, I'm not saying that, you know, the, I'm not like trying to like minimize the role of like a Jews, for example, in the city because, you know, traditionally Salonika had been always like, you know, uh, heavily populated by the Jews uh, again throughout the centuries. Um, but Donmez, I mean, had like the Turkish privileges that they could occupy uh, seats uh, in, say, government or in uh, uh, institutions that could not be occupied by other minorities. Therefore, I mean, they cleverly, you know, took a good advantage of these two worlds and then made a good use of it at the end of the 19th century. And that's so why they were impactful. They were able to have these sort of merchant networks, but then didn't face the sort of glass ceiling that a non-Muslim may have faced in the empire for bureaucratic or any position of authority, really. Absolutely, because again, I mean, um, at, at the surface, I mean, they were regular Turks and Muslims. And also, I mean, that's something that we did not have a chance to talk, but theologically speaking too, I mean, their Turkishness and their Muslims, Muslimness were justified actually, even at the beginning, that you know they had to go through an Islamic and Ottoman phase anyway, for the redemption, because according to Sabbatian theology, Muslimness is a penultimate stage before the redemption. Therefore, it was perfectly fine to act as such, and they got this privilege. And when it comes to the connection to other, uh, other, other developments, as I said, second half of 19th century was a time, Tanzimat time, Tanzimat period, and the young generations were uh, being liberated from left and right, from, again, uh, Jewish circles, Turkish circles, Muslim circles, Armenian circles. But these people needed to have new settings where they could meet and create a new solidarity. 
they need that solidarity when they do criticize say their their traditional uh their traditional lives and genç osmanlılar yani young ottomans and young turks and later on Ma- Freemason lodges became new houses which united people under a different banner, under somewhat more universal ideas. And it is no surprise again uh, to see that you know first Muslim, um, Mason lodges were in Salonika. And those young people, again, uh, were into media and bureaucracy and military. And finally... Uh, of course, their ideas found some more receptive ears in Committee of Union and Progress, and in a way, uh, through Union Progress Party, and during their domination of Ottoman politics in the late period, in a way, Dönme ideas or practices, but liberated Dönme ideas and uh, practices, transcended Salonika and became a widespread Ottoman thing. So, by the founding of the Turkish Republic, the Donme of Salonika have virtually all left for Turkey or various other places through forced migration, through the population exchanges with Greece or other circumstances. What is the status of Donme communities in the 20th and even 21st centuries? Despite the fact that by the 1900s, Salonika was almost a big Donme city, Donme city state almost, because they were running uh, politics and then economy and then media. But 1912, of course, is the time uh, Salonika basically replaced hands from Turks to the Greeks. And that was a big watershed event for that history that, that, that in a way, brought the end of the classical structure of Donme community. 1917 was another momentous event. Uh, there was a big Salonika fire which, you know, burned down all the uh, traditional neighborhoods, Jewish, Muslim, and Donma neighborhoods. But the last big event, of course, uh, population exchange uh, as a result of the Lausanne Agreement between Greece and Turkey uh, that, you know, the Greeks are so were supposed to go to uh, Rome, rather, like we were supposed to go to Greece, and then Turks were supposed to come here. And since Donmes were considered as Turks, they were all expelled from uh, Salonika. There were some, you know, uh, initiatives asking to stay in Salonika because uh, we know that few Donmes uh, send a petition to Tur- Greek Parliament saying that, look, I mean, we were not typical Turks. Look, I mean, why don't you? exclude us uh, from uh, this uh, population exp- exchange. But from the Greek point of view, it didn't matter because their aim was to Hellenize the city at any expense. So they did not really bother with this petition and uh, almost all of them, except few of them, almost all of them you know, came to uh, Turkey, into different cities, mainly to Istanbul and Izmir. And, and then they now uh, you know, become to play pivotal roles in the formation of this young Turkish Republic, including formation of the ideology of Turkish Republic that was that turned to be the secularism. I mean, Donmez in a way, uh, liberal Donmez became the staunch supporters of secularism with the expectation that uh, that new identity, new secular identity could really conclusively um, redeem them from the yoke of both traditional Jewish and also Donme orthodoxy. What about the importance of studying Donmes today? Why is this sort of study significant and how are they remembered? 
10, 15 years ago, uh, the topic was quite hot in Turkey. And there were uh, several big shots, like you know, authors uh, wrote uh, on this one, and then their books were sold in tens of thousands. I mean, in Turkey, it's just so hard to buy, like, you know, sell a book like more than thousands uh, uh, on a subject. But here, we are talking about like, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, volumes were being uh, sold on this very topic. Because the topic is part of a big conspiratorial issues in Turkey that to some people, uh, Donmez were the uh, major actors uh, to bring down the Ottoman Empire or to form or to establish the modern Turkish Republic. And to some others, they are the ones who are running Turkey today. I think that, you know, it is being remembered somewhat differently uh, and also instrumentalized uh, somewhat differently by different segments. I mean, Dönmez themselves tried to remember and reconstruct, of course, their history from a theological vantage point that they always tried to show that, you know, they had been part of the secular culture from the beginning, as if it has been, it had been the case since the 17th century. Right? That is a clear reconstruction, and to me, it's again also some of the distorting uh, the history. It is true that you know some of the Dunmas, you know, became part of the secularization, modernization process, but not all of them necessarily. Again, for the Islamists, it also played a great role, especially when they did form their own identity in last 20, uh, 30 years. They wanted to have a new other to delegitimize some of the practice of Turkish public, including secularism, and they blamed the Donmas as a scapegoat saying that it was the Donmas who kind of created the secular modern Turkey, which was also very anti-Islamic. And for the nationalist segments, they also had different meanings. But at the end of the day, Donmas history is being remembered by different segments, and they been they had been like instrumentalized by also different uh, people. And that's why uh, the topic is not going to die out any uh, foreseeable future, not only in Turkey, but also in Israel too. I mean, if you look at the Jewish scholarship, there's also a great deal of uh, interest into Sabbatian studies from Jewish studies perspective as well. Well, we've come very far today in our discussion from 1626 and the birth of this fellow in Izmir all the way up until the present. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I thank you very much for having me. And for those of you who'd like to find out more, I encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, The Burden of Silence, Sabatai Sevi and the Ottoman Turkish Donmez, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. I also encourage you to visit us online at our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find a bibliography of further reading, as well as leave comments and ask questions about the topics we covered. You can also join us on Facebook, where you can stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners and follow news and upcoming series and episodes. That's all for our conversation today. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. <laughs>